Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Are you in a comfortable position to hold the, the phone? Because I, I know after 20 minutes, um, especially for me with my own lack of exercise, I get quite fatigued holding any object, unless it has gin in it. So... Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing reporter with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, September 18th. Liam, California is on fire yet again. Oh no. Wow, I just sarcastic with the wildfires right out of the gate. Not what I was expecting. I mean the this state of devastation is unfathomable and it's on top of an already unfathomable year of disaster. And not only that, even if you're far away from a fire, like I fortunately am in Los Angeles, I've not been able to go outside for a week. It's just just too much, man. Well, for what feels like, I think the third consecutive year, which is as long as we've been doing this podcast, we will be talking about the effect of wildfires on California's housing crisis. And we have the perfect guest to talk about that with. Yes, this is uh, Shauna O'Shaughnessy. She's the president and CEO of Community uh, Housing Improvement Program, an affordable housing development firm in Chico. Her firm had a project in Paradise, which was the town that burned down two years ago in the campfire. And now they're ready to rebuild. But when they were scheduled to have their groundbreaking earlier this month, it was delayed again because of the fire. Yes, and specifically the unbreathable air. Hard to ignore the symbolism with that. And we'll be asking her, should we be rebuilding right where they are rebuilding? Uh, spoiler. No, I'm not. Were you going to say spoiler? She thinks yes. yes. <laughs> What's interesting is I'm often accused of infusing levity into situations that probably don't warrant it. But I think right. on this episode, you're taking it to another level, Liam. I'm proud oh, of boy. you. Gross. About me. By me. Yeah. It's not you. It's the fact that you've been cooped up, as I have, in a apartment with a significant other without being able to go outside because you're going to breathe poison air. Or yes. go into a movie theater or anywhere else indoors because you'll also breathe a different type of poison air. We did find a hack for that this week. Oh, what's your hack? Share with our audience. We did a drive-in movie at the Sony Pictures lot. That was kind of cool to drive on to the lot close to my apartment in L.A. And so it was neat that they had the, the Ghostbusters car out, too. Oh, that's pretty sweet. You know, it was an event. That'll be the next thing California has to deal with, ghosts. <laughs> a la Ghostbusters. What movie did you see? Was it Tenet? Uh, it was a rom-com, uh, the Broken Hearts Club Cafe or something like that. Um, it was. <laughs> you just made a mash of rom-com movie words and just threw them together. That was Starring mostly... McConaughey? No, it was mostly correct what I said in terms of the words for the name of the movie. It was, uh, let's just say it was a night out. Sounds very pleasant. Okay, it's now time for the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is... The Avocado of the Fortnite. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. This avocado comes from a longtime listener. It actually takes us outside California. Very rare that we go outside of California, but sometimes it's just too ripe. Yes. I, how many times have you made the ripe joke... For the avocado. It works, it works every time, man. It's comedy gold. I don't know. Maybe our longtime <laughs> listener can weigh in and see whether <laughs> he or she approves of this. Anyway, this one takes us outside of California all the way to the castles of Westeros. I'm hoping that is the right fictional universe. 
So castles of Westeros and also the United States' uh, I guess Adobe capital, Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs> As such, uh, you might expect if you want to build something big in Santa Fe, then you you have to get various approvals of various boards. So earlier this month, the Santa Fe Historic Districts Review Board, which sounds perfectly reasonable, crushed a proposal, crushed, destroyed, by Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin, mm. who wanted to build a 24 to 26 foot seven sided tower with battered stucco walls on his property. And he was going to name it the Water Garden Keep. What does that even mean? I don't know. What does that mean? That must be Game of Thrones language. I I, mean, it sounds awesome. This all this comes from a New York Times article, which was very good, had its tongue firmly planted in its cheek throughout. But we would be shocked to know that this Santa Fe Historic District Review Board believed that Water Garden Keep was the size and design were out of scale with the surrounding community. Quote, this is from Frank Katz, vice chairman of the review board. It is so clear this is not an adobe building. It is a medieval castle, and I don't understand how we could possibly approve it in its style. Yes, and to be clear, this castle, it wasn't going to be a duplex. It still would have been a single-family home. It was going to house his books. It was going to be for his library. Yes. So So not In addition to his house, yes. Right. Yes. You know what I will say? I think a lot of our listeners um, are of the opinion that the historical designation of these historical registries sometimes can be abused to disincentivize new housing development. However, I will say if they come after the uh, Breaking Bad house in Albuquerque, I will be out there protesting because that is a historical landmark mm-hmm. and that should not be touched. And I want to bring my grandchildren to that someday because it was, you know, major formative part of my life. Well, and interesting, bringing things back to the avocado, one of the reasons why this uh, review board in Santa Fe said they didn't want it is they feared, feared, were worried about fans of Game of Thrones coming and seeing this and I guess disturbing the peace in Santa Fe. Probably not a unreasonable worry. No, no. Yeah. Okay. That concludes our avocado of the fortnight, our look at the most absurd California housing story the past two weeks. Let's move on to the topic that somehow has eclipsed the pandemic yeah. in California, which gives you an idea of the scope and severity. It is record wildfires yet again. And this time it's really, really, really bad. Liam, why don't you start with kind of the scope of these wildfires and how they've affected housing stock in California? And I think we could even put it in a broader context, not just the fires that are burning now have been burning over the past couple months. And again, we're not even what peak fire season is supposed to be. So there could be significantly more. If we look at, I guess, the past couple of years and we've had episodes on wildfires, they've typically been in October. On that note, very quickly, just to remind people, the campfire which destroyed Paradise, which is what we'll be talking about in the interview section, that happened in November. My son, my college, the LA Times, I think did a really good piece earlier this week, putting in context just how bad things are and how much worse things are now than they've been really at any point in, in modern memory in California. So eight of the 10 largest fires in California history have burned in just in the past decade. Earlier this month, the August complex fire became the largest fire in the state's history. And then seven of the 10 most destructive fires, so buildings burned, right, in state history have happened in the last five years. Almost 30,000 structures have been destroyed, and that's more than just houses, but that's still a lot of buildings, mostly houses. And that's the equivalent, to make this comparison, of more than five L.A. downtowns of those that have burned. It's a very telling analogy. Kudos to the writer that came up with that. But let's keep in context, again, a 
big destruction around of these are homes. So Justin, this was from a story that I did a couple years ago of the 14 months between 2016 and 2018, with the campfire being the most devastating at that time, 21,000 homes across six counties were destroyed in, in five wildfires. And that was equivalent to more than 85% of the new housing built in those same counties over the previous decade. And so we talk about this housing shortage that we have in California being a main driver or the main driver to the high cost of housing in the state. Obviously, when you have any sort of gains in housing production being erased or nearly erased by fire, that only simply digs the hole that we're in deeper. Not to mention the displaced residents, even in a temporary fashion, that have to find rental housing in the meantime in often very expensive regions. So it's kind of a double whammy, right? Yes, yes. The devastation, particularly when it comes to the destruction of the housing stock, raises a couple very intuitive questions that I think Californians have been asking themselves and their elected officials for decades. But I think now those questions are very, very loud, which is, should we be building in these areas to begin with? And should we be rebuilding in areas that have already burned down, especially as it seems that more and more of our housing stock is in areas that are vulnerable to wildfires as kind of the effects of climate change make more and more of California vulnerable to wildfires generally. So let, let's actually start with what Governor Gavin Newsom, kind of his broad attitude towards those questions. So he, I think, and we'll see if this has changed, generally speaking, uh, and this was an interview, I think the most sort of fulsome comments he's made on this recently were from spring of 2019. Fulsome? Yes. Fulsome, fulsome. comments. Fulsome comments. That's, are you still trying to weave in your GRE word of the fortnight? I will tell you, I once applied to multiple graduate schools uh, uh, a few years ago, and I did not get into any of them. So, uh, <laughs> so here we are today. Uh, perhaps I'm overcompensating. Yeah, so let's talk about the fulsome comments. Yes, so this is an interview he did with the Associated Press in the spring of 2019, and he was asked very specifically, hey, should we stop building in these high-risk wildfire zones? And his quote was, there is something that is truly Californian about the wilderness and the wild and pioneering spirit. So I am not advocating for no building, he said at that time. So if Governor Newsom won't endorse prohibiting new construction in wildfire-prone areas, what is his preferred method of tamping down on the risks here? So this was most recently when he had a press event in, in a wildfire-affected zone, was talking about the need to accelerate the state's climate change goals. So the state has very ambitious goals to reduce carbon emissions by 2030. And he's also do things like put more electric cars on the road, all these sorts of things. And he's, again, kind of said, we're looking to accelerate these climate change goals that we have, but so far kind of lacking some specifics on exactly what it is that he wants to do. But that's sort of been the strategy so far is to, again, to shy away from doing things that would be I think particularly severe, like stopping building or talking about uh, efforts that would do that and more sort of doing things that address the broad climate change issues more generally. What do you make of the argument that, and we get into this in the interview too, that, well, everywhere in California, there's some risk of natural disaster, right? We devoted an entire episode to the absolute calamity that might ensue in housing. Earthquake, yeah. If a significant earthquake hits the Bay Area, which isn't an if, it's a when, right? Right. So what do you make of that argument? Do you think that's fair? 
Well, I mean, I think short answer, no. If there were an earthquake every year, then maybe it'd be different. But I, I think it's sort of clear that these issues are happening in more and more frequent way. And so you have to do something, I think. And, and that could be things if it's not prohibiting building. There are other things that may make wildfires less risky. I mean, there's some good reporting that's come out that there were some efforts to try to clear brush or clear areas at risk for fire that were delayed because they need required permits under the California Environmental Quality Act with respect to this most recent fire. And so you have to kind of, I think, do something that would address the risk that we're seeing now year after year after year. And I think it is helpful perhaps to divide this into multiple kind of spheres of people. I mean, I think there's the folks who are living in a place right now, and that is... I think the most thorny and complicated issue and what you do for those people versus properties that haven't been built yet. And I think there's a different level of attachment and risk that is there for building brand new as opposed to stuff that's already there. And I think the third thing that we haven't really discussed is the insurance industry. The insurance industry, like many industries, does not like to keep paying losses every single year. And so they are going to be invested in finding a way to limit those losses and perhaps potentially stop insuring places that, again, continually get burning. That's the de facto market mechanism that would inhibit a couple of the scenarios that we talked about, both rebuilding and then kind of greenfield development in some of these more risky areas. And if you say that, oh, well, we sh that could really harm people and the government should step in to make sure that the insurance industry covers folks. I mean, again, you could see some arguments for that. But at the same time, that means the general tax base is then subsidizing development that may well be very unsafe or may burn down again. And so I think there's questions about whether the fairness doing that. I just want to add one thing about Newsom's comments that he wants to accelerate the state's greenhouse gas goals in order to fight this. I, I think, you know, a lot of progressives in California would generally agree with that sentiment. But even if he's able to achieve that, that is absolutely no guarantee that these wildfires won't keep happening and would not affect the possible development or replacement of housing in these specific areas. So it almost reminds me of the Jerry Brown comments when he left the governorship that housing was just too difficult for him to deal with from the guy who really went hard on climate change, right? Which is also a very, very difficult problem. I don't know. It, it just somewhat reminded me of that kind of ethos. Now, we should note that there is one bill on the governor's desk, Senate Bill 182 from Senator Hannah Beth Jackson from the Central Coast, that would require cities to take some extra steps in planning for growth in very high-risk wildfire zones. Nothing like any sort of blanket ban or even steps to any sort of ban that, again, that draconian measure that some folks may believe is necessary. So when we talk about these wildfires, not only are we talking about the obvious human and financial costs of them, it is also exacerbating a portion of the housing crisis that we don't talk enough about, right? right. Like you and yeah. me don't talk enough about, let alone yeah. kind of the quote unquote mainstream media. And that's the rural housing crisis in California. G give us some dimensions of that particular portion of the state's housing crisis. Yeah. So I think when people think a housing crisis in California, they think like the high costs of living and home prices and, and rent in the Bay Area, right? San Francisco, Silicon Valley, that sort of stuff. But actually, you know, when you, and it's really important to keep in context, what these ideas of housing cost burdens, right? So the price of housing compared to what people's incomes are. And what you find is that there are way higher housing cost burdens for renter and homeowners in rural areas of states, so say the far north than the Central Valley, than in the Bay Area. And so more than a third of households are paying more than 30% of their income on housing in those rural 
communities. And that's kind of the, the level that the, the federal government says when you, your housing spending starts crowding out other necessities. And so that whole thing shows that despite you see these super high numbers in the Bay Area, because incomes are higher there too, you could argue that the overall housing affordability situation is worse in some of these rural areas because of the lower incomes than in the Bay Area. Yes, it's also why the official poverty rates in rural areas and in the Central Valley in California is, is lower, because incomes are simply lower. Matt, why don't you talk to us a little bit about this Paradise Village project in Paradise? Sure. Let's start on a journey of how I discovered this story and see yeah. how boring it is. I was at a affordable housing conference. I think me and you were actually doing a dog and pony show at it. Yes. And I was a- attending some panel on something and I forget what it was. It had to do with disaster relief. And then all of a sudden this woman raises her hand and asks a question and she says, hi, I'm a LIHTC low income housing tax credit, which is the lifeblood of affordable housing finance. I'm basically a LIHTC investor in a property in paradise. And we're worried because the IRS isn't giving us enough time to rebuild this property. And my ears as a reporter immediately perked up. Yeah. Yeah. So I began chatting with this investor, which led me to this Paradise Village project. This was the largest subsidized housing specifically reserved for low-income residents in Paradise. It completely burned in the campfire in 2018. Quick interjection. I was there in the aftermath of the fire, you know, saw this property and it was really ghostly there. I mean, I remember I have a picture that still have on my phone of just playground equipment, the only thing that had left and burnt out washers and dryers and just really evoked the whole kind of horror that the entire town experienced. Yes, there was a fatality from, you know, one of the residents passed away in the fire. It was absolutely horrific. I mean, a lot of the residents had mobility issues. It was a nightmare getting them out. Yeah. So, you know, the vast majority of Paradise Paradise Village burns the nonprofit housing developer that built it, who we'll be talking with. They want to come back. And yeah, I think importantly, the residents want to come back too, despite the trauma of the fire, partly because of the affordability crisis that we just discussed in more rural areas of California. They just don't have a lot of other options, even in relatively cheaper places like Chico and Redding, because there's also now a new flood of people who have been displaced by the fires. So the nonprofit developer is on the road to rebuilding. They're coming across all types of problems that you would expect in trying to build something that burnt down. But one of the bigger problems that they ran into was the IRS. The IRS only gives you a two-year window to rebuild subsidized housing if it's financed with the low-income housing tax credit, which a bunch of subsidized housing is built with. And the Paradise Village people say... There's no way we can rebuild this in two years. We don't even have potable water yet. We can't do it. And the IRS says, eh, we don't really care. The IRS still hasn't budged. And we get into this a little bit in the interview, but that is one of the major obstacles for affordable housing being rebuilt in paradise beyond the broader question of whether it should be, whether this is all going to happen again. Well, and again, I think that that point, you know, speaks to some of the issues that we've talked about a lot and some of the reporting that we've done borne out with respect to the ways in which various levels of government bureaucracy, whether it's state, federal or local, tie these developers to kind of very specific rules and regulations that just simply make it, A, simply make it harder to build, B, make you take a longer time to build, and C, drive up the cost of building. And of course, all of these things, when you put it together, mean fewer houses slower for the folks who need it. 
let me just ask you point blank. Do you think this affordable housing complex should be rebuilt? Yes. If, you know, if they're rebuilding paradise. Oh, I know what you're going to say. If they're rebuilding the market rate stuff, then they should rebuild this. That's the yes. easy thing to say, Liam. But that's true. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sometimes that, the easy that, answer is the correct one. That so, elides uh, yeah. the bigger question, which is should they be rebuilding, period? You're going to have residents of this complex that are more vulnerable to a fire than in some of the market rate housing they're rebuilding. Maybe. I mean, where are they supposed to go? Like, where are they supposed to go? And again, we get into this in the interview too, but like, you know, folks are tied to this community. I think maybe reflecting back a little, and I asked some of these questions during the interview and reflecting back a little on our earlier conversation. Yeah, I think folks are already living in a place should be considered or thought about in a different way than perhaps building anew. But this is, these are folks who have ties to this community, you know, and have lived there previously. This is not like we're talking somebody who bought property 10 years ago to build their woodland dream home, where mm -hmm. this is a very different kind of circumstance. And, you know, and one I think that should be reflected or thought about differently. And yeah, if they're going to rebuild the town at all, then they absolutely should be able to rebuild it in a way that allows for continued levels of, of dedicated low-income housing. Okay. Well, with that, let's talk to the person that's actually trying to rebuild affordable housing in paradise. Yes. Let's talk to Shauna. Shauna O'Shaughnessy. We are here with Shauna O'Shaughnessy. She's the president and CEO of Community Housing Improvement Program, an affordable housing development firm in Chico. Shauna, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about Paradise Village, the project that you had. So Paradise Community Village is a multifamily project in the town of Paradise. It was a project that took a really long time to come together. It was the brainchild of a consortium of organizations, including the town, Youth for Change, the soccer club. And it was this sweet little community that we were able to put together, beloved by the town and the people who lived in it. So the fire came through incredibly fast. The entire town would be consumed. And when I say entire town, I mean 80 to 90 percent. But effectively yeah. the entire town. Mm -hmm. And the loss of this property was just added to the overwhelming sense of loss of community that people had because you had entire family networks that were torn asunder because you had multiple generations of families that were living there. You had siblings and they were just scattered across the United States. And so the ability to rebuild Paradise Community Village became more than just our obligation as a LIHTC property, low-income housing tax credit property, and our commitment to our investors. It became very much a part of the restoration of the town and the building back of community. And we're just one organization of many individuals and other organizations that are doing the same thing, but it was incredibly important to us. Can we back up a little bit? So how many apartments was it? It was like a few dozen, right? Yes, it was 36, 35 affordable, and then the manager's unit. Could you tell us a little bit more about the residents? Like what types of people were actually living in them? So it was a family development. It was a family project, but we had a range of people. So the youngest was an infant and the oldest was a person in their 70s. 
and there was a playground. It just had a diverse mix of people living there, and we loved it. This was the only specifically low-income housing in Paradise, correct? At least of its size. Of its size. There were a handful of multifamily projects in the town. Some of them were much older. There was a HUD project that was owned by a private family, essentially. And then the housing authorities project had 12 units. So there wasn't a lot of affordable multifamily projects in the town of Paradise, um, specifically built in this way. We were the first tax credit project, but there was a high number of affordable housing in terms of the mobile homes, the mobile home parks, inherited houses. Kind of naturally occurring affordable housing. Yeah. I actually grew up in Paradise. I was gone for 20 plus years and had moved back in 2015. And my friends bought their first house is in the early 2000s for $65,000. I mean, which is Mm. kind of unheard of. And, you know, they're able to build off of that. And so all of that is gone. I mean, it's just gone. And so the intentionality of creating affordable housing to have places for working families, for seniors, so that you have a diverse community is really important. Before we move on to the decision to rebuild and what things are like now, I presume you weren't on the property the day of the fire and it burned down, but tell me about what you learned and what you were hearing and what that was like. I wasn't working for CHIP at the time of the fire, but I have had many conversations with the staff at the time. And I did have friends and my parents actually lived in the town. So the stories are very close and personal. And I think that for everyone, by the time that they got the evacuate now notice, the fire was to the roads. And so for our residents and for most of the people who had to evacuate, people are driving down roads where there's fire on all sides and there's sounds of explosions between the trees exploding in the propane tanks. And I had one person describe it to me that a firefighter was like, go and don't stop. And you're driving into what looks like live fire and black smoke. And she said, Every instinct inside of me said, turn around, run away, because you literally were making a decision that your instincts were saying, I'm going to die, and you have to drive through this in order to get to the other side and survive. So the trauma of this particular fire, I think, can't be understated. Why don't you tell us what happened with your groundbreaking ceremony and why it was delayed? I am going to back up a little bit. So the decision and the determination that we had right after the fire that we were going to come back and rebuild and be part of the restoration of this community has met roadblock after roadblock. So debris removal didn't happen until almost a year after the fire. And then there was the question of, was the water going to be drinkable? And and then the normal process of permits and blah, blah, blah. And we were in the zone of what was appropriate for our insurance, but costs have just escalated. And so where we ended up with kind of a rough back of the napkin estimate was that we had about 
three quarters of the money we needed to rebuild with insurance mm-hmm. money. And then FEMA public assistance was filling in the gap and then people responded and have donated to this. And so we knew we were close to having the budget to rebuild, but we also knew that with a low-income housing tax credit property, if you don't rebuild after a disaster within 25 months, which is what the IRS has deemed to be a reasonable time frame, you are subject to recapturing the tax credits. So you're done. You're yeah, done. Basically. Pretty much. Yeah. And also just for everyone, we still have over a thousand people who aren't stabilized that we know they're in active case management. And so it just breaks your heart that you're not able to move this along faster. So we kind of looked at the budget and we're like, okay, with some tweaking, we figured it out. It's still an incredible risk and we'll need to fundraise to cover the gap. But the reasons to move forward were too compelling So we did it. We had to start in July and we did and we're moving forward and we're dealing with COVID. And then we had the lightning fires in August and there were fires and and then we had a windstorm a couple weeks ago that just blew the fire into the canyons closer to us. And there was an evacuation warning for the east side of the town of Paradise. And it was black and heavy and the sky was red and it just felt like the end of the world again. And and it was really hard. It was really hard. And so we postponed our groundbreaking celebration, not because we felt the project was in danger, but it just, well, we couldn't meet because of the smoke, but it also just felt icky to be in this moment that felt so similar to what it felt like a couple of years ago. I think a lot of people are going to listen to that and obviously be, you know, very sympathetic to the cause of rebuilding Paradise Village. But at the same time, the symbolism of you guys having to postpone the groundbreaking because of yet another nearby fire can't really be ignored. Was there any thought that crossed your mind in terms of Uh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this because the fires are going to come back. So I think if anything, this set of fires that we've had in 2020 illustrate the point that there's nowhere in California that is safe from some sort of natural disaster, whether it is wildfires or earthquakes or flooding. So you have the town of Paradise, which grew up in a kind of mountain adjacent area, but you have Tahoe. Are we going to like kick everyone out of Tahoe? Are we going to move everyone from Truckee? I mean, Wilson Observatory in LA, right? Like these are populated areas that aren't built in what people are saying, oh, it's irresponsible. And I think that the conversation isn't as nuanced. It's like, oh, people are choosing to build in areas that are high risk. These didn't used to be high risk areas, but they've become high risk areas because of climate change and the drought and just all of these reasons. And so I think that there has to be a recognition that it is a bigger decision than building close to forests. And the decision to rebuild is like, this is their home. And even though Paradise was somewhat threatened by this fire, 
it's going to be safer because of the new building codes that are being incorporated, the defensible space that people are putting in. And we can't ignore the fact that this is home for people and that it's the choices of the world and how we've chosen to live that have made them unsafe. Let me just push on that a little bit. I think in some of the conversations I've had with people about this, that the real thorny and concerning issue is the folks who are already living in a particular high-risk wildfire area. Like, how do you move those folks out or all those sorts of things that you may need to do to really deal with whatever the wildfire risk may be? But I think there's a a different conversation than, you know, do we build new things, new homes in these communities that we know, even if they weren't risky before, now we know are, and that risk seems to be continuing to grow. Do you think that there should be any restrictions on new growth in some of these high-risk areas? So where I'm poking the hole is this definition of what is high risk. Think about Santa Rosa. It burned and it has been evacuated twice since it burned. And Santa Rosa doesn't get dubbed a high risk area, yet it is in, you know, the city of Napa and Healdsburg and Guerneville. I mean, they're, they're threatened year after year after year, yet they're not dubbed high risk like our little town of paradise. And so I think that that's a question of like, why are we calling these little communities high risk? And I think your point, like they're too rich. Like no one's going to want to lose their million dollar home and move out. And a lot of resources are poured into protecting them. I think that's certainly a fair point. But my question was not about the issue as particularly thorny of those who are already living in a certain place. My question was directed to, should we be building further or building new homes in some of the communities, whether it is a wealthy community that's at high risk for fire or whether it's a poorer community that's at high risk for a fire? So my contention is that every community is high risk. And so dubbing some high risk and saying we can't build there, it doesn't make sense. So San Francisco, it's on a fault line and there's going to be an earthquake and there's going to be mass devastation at some point. Yet we keep building there and we don't say that we shouldn't build there. And we have fault lines across California. It's just less frequent than the wildfires. And so I think it's a false equivalency in some ways to, well, you shouldn't build there because of the risk when we have people building in areas where there's risk, it just may not be as frequent or it's different or it's wealthier communities. Maybe we can shift to how exactly this new iteration of Paradise Village is going to protect its residents against the threat of wildfires. Like what specific modifications are you guys making in your development plans? Former residents I talked to had mobility issues, and this is fairly common for a lot of low-income housing complexes. There was one former resident who had multiple sclerosis. That would seem to make it even more of kind of a liability in terms of needing like a quick evacuation with a wildfire approaching. So what are you guys doing to make this new version of Paradise Village safer? So... One of the things that has been really great about the way the town has approached recovery and rebuilding is that the town itself is thinking very comprehensively about how to make the entire community safer. Part of it is PG&E is undergrounding 
all of the utilities. And there is a plan to widen the roads so that two-lane roads can become four-lane roads for evacuation routes, connecting dead-end streets so that people can move out faster. And then there's a, other comprehensive plans that are happening at the town level that will make every resident safer, including the residents of Paradise Community Village. And then for CHIP specifically, we have beefed up emergency preparedness planning and evacuation planning and notifications and kind of all of those supports and working with residents to have their plans in place too. And so we are committed to that emergency preparedness at all of our properties because, you know, you never know. How about with the specific building? Is there anything with the building itself, like with construction or with defensible space around it or stuff like that, that is different than before? The Paradise Community Village was actually built to the highest um, WUI standards. WUI, so highest wildland interface, urban interface standards, right? Yes. I was waiting for it. I'm surprised it took us this long to get to the WUI. To get to the WUI. So Paradise Community Village was built to WUI standards, and we did have significant defense space all around the property. And the campfire was just a, a different kind of fire. But there could be more with the surrounding area outside of the parking lot. Um, there is a program that is removing all of the dead trees, the fire damaged trees. There is a state program similar to the debris removal for any trees that are threatening a roadway or a public or private road. And then it is the responsibility of private property owners to move their dead trees. So there's a very strict approach to tree removal that is part of the safety measures and precautions that we were talking about. So I feel very confident in these majors that are taking place. And so it will be as safe as we can make it. So I think we've been kind of talking around this issue for most of the conversation. Could you give us your perspective on how you feel the housing affordability crisis is different in rural areas of California compared to more urban parts of the state? So I lived in the Bay Area for 15 years. And I worked in housing, I did housing rehab, and so I saw the pressures of affordability there. I felt the pressures of affordability, and one of the reasons my husband and I decided to move back was because of housing affordability. But the affordability is relative. So for us, coming from the Bay Area, the housing felt and seemed incredibly affordable. But local wages and this kind of constantly escalating cost of housing, both homeownership and rental, was putting pressure on the local population and their ability to afford housing. And there is a huge affordability gap in rural communities for people who are looking at it and potentially comparing it to the Bay Area or LA. They're like, you can rent a two-bedroom apartment for $1,000. That's super affordable. Or you can buy a home for $400,000. That's super affordable. But they're not taking into consideration the wages and that 
it is not affordable for people who are living and working in these communities. And it's just continued to escalate. And the campfire is part of that. So, for example, Butte County, one person who is extremely low income, it's 14850 and then all of our dollars count- a year that they a would year. make. Yes. yes. Yeah, and yeah. then <laughs> if you go to, say, San Mateo County, where I worked and lived, it's 36550 And you go to a family of four in Butte County, it's 56550 And in San Mateo County, it is 139000 And the cost of living in rural communities is not lower. So housing is comparatively lower. Daycare, childcare is a lot lower, but food, gas, utilities, all of it is the same. You're getting less money and it doesn't go as far. I think part of the kind of rural affordability crisis is somewhat reflected in demand for the units that you guys are trying to rebuild. So could you talk about that? The residents who want to move back to Paradise Village and kind of what you expect in terms of how quickly you'll be able to fill these units once they're rebuilt, even despite kind of the the PTSD of the campfire? We stayed in contact with all of the residents. Our resident services specialist has stayed in contact with them. Some of them ended up at some of our other properties. And when we posted the announcement that we were rebuilding, many responded on Facebook and were like, we can't wait to come back. You know, it's home. We want to be there. And it just for us reinforces the decision to move forward. And we know that it won't be everyone who lived there won't come back. But having that housing available for people, people who are working up there, who need stable housing, is incredibly important. How long is the waiting list for all of your properties, your subsidized low-income properties? Are you on that list for six months or on that list for a year? Are you on the list for five years? Just some context for that. It depends upon unit, income, where the property is located. And so we do have some properties where the wait lists are closed. So that is years long. For the ones that are open, it's anywhere from very quickly, three months to a year. Earlier this year, myself and some colleagues spent a lot of time trying to better understand some of the cost drivers to building low-income housing, which of course is a constraint on the amount of low-income housing that can be built. From your perspective, what's the one thing that state or local government or the federal government could change that you think could make it more cost-effective to build? Okay, so I'm probably going to say something that no one else says, but I think that the bureaucracy that has developed around ensuring compliance with the guidelines creates a level of expense both at the development level and the operational level that is frankly a waste of money and time. Could you give like an example? So To build a new multifamily, you have consultants to help you with the applications. You have the same consultant kind of trying to find an investor for you. You have the attorneys looking at 
every single piece of paper because you have to fit through all of these hoops that are both requirements at the state and the federal level. And some of them make sense, right? Like you're trying to steward public dollars and make sure that it's the best use, but like it's become so complicated and cumbersome that the goal of what we're trying to do almost seems to get lost. And then at the operational level, we require annual income certifications and then bit of paperwork that our tenants have to submit has to be accurate. And then the files have to be kept and then they're audited. And basically our tenants have to pay for their affordable unit with really intensive invasion of privacy. Like Those of us who have rented in the regular market, we would never submit to the level of scrutiny that is required. And it's to prevent fraud. But I wonder if the fraud is as great as the cost of compliance. All right. Anything else that you want to communicate to our very vast and influential uh, (laughs) audience? I want to use you guys for a second to once again point out the absurdity of the 25-month restoration period for the low-income housing tax credit. So we have done everything we've moved at pace to keep things going forward. And the IRS, in spite of multiple requests directly from us, from our elected officials, refused to provide an extension to the restoration period They refuse to look at the individual circumstances of a disaster like the campfire and say, yes, you're moving forward. The housing is needed. It's important. And we will allow you more time to rebuild. And it truly threatens the creation of affordable housing or the restoration of affordable housing, this attitude that they're taking. And So we have until the end of this year. We're hoping that they'll see the light. So we keep talking about it, keep asking. We really need the powers that be at the IRS or the Treasury to weigh in and provide us with more time to rebuild. Not even to mention the fact that you have this two-year rebuilding window, but market rate housing, there is no such deadline in most of the cases. Yes. (laughs) Something else to keep in mind. Well, thanks so much for your your time, uh, Shona. We really appreciate it. I appreciate chatting with you. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is at Dillon Liam. And shout out again to producer, editor extraordinaire Victor Figueroa, who does all of our editing work now on Gimme Shelter. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And fear not, I know many of you have questions about uh, ballot measures and the election, and a couple of them deal with housing issues. And we will make sure to have you prepared in advance of your vote on uh, rent control, on a uh, convoluted property tax measure, Prop 19, and perhaps other things as well. And maybe even split roll too, we might throw in there just for fun. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>